Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week, we're going to talk a little about Breaking Bad just at the top, so there may be some spoilers ahead. And we'll also be hearing a little bit from Robin Sloan. He's going to give us some homework. Robin Sloan is the author of one of our favorite books from the last year, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. Thanks for saying that, Greta. I'm always nervous I'm going to say Penumbra wrong. Penumbra? Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to hear from him. He's going to give us a little homework. And next week, you'll hear even more from Robin. We had a great conversation about all things writing and tech. In addition to our main act, which we're really excited about, it's Victoria Schwab, who wrote Vicious. We're also going to do a little superpower voicemail recap. Because you guys left some pretty awesome messages about the age-old debate And by age old, I mean it's been a debate since Greta said the weird thing she said (laughs) on our previous episode, which is I said my superpower of choice would be flight, and she said hers would be... Keeping baby animals baby. So the debate raged on, on our voicemail and on Facebook. Thanks to everyone who jumped in with an answer. You guys will hear what your peers had to say about it at the end of the show today. Even if you haven't been watching Breaking Bad, I'm sure you've been hearing a fair amount about it because it's kind of everywhere right now. So I would just like to extend my thanks to pretty much everyone on earth because I have been watching Breaking Bad usually on Monday afternoons because as you know, Trisha, I like to go to bed really early, especially on Sunday because I have to wake up at 4 a.m. for this thing called a job. Also because of the job, I kind of have to be on the internet in the mornings. I need to be on Twitter. I need to know what people are talking about and what's going on in the news world. And I've been really, really impressed with how many people have not spoiled the show for me. I didn't know a single thing ahead of the finale about the finale. It made me really happy. I think on a show as good as Breaking Bad, we just didn't want to take that away from each other. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Though I have to say, Benji Tarshish, I'm a little upset that you tweeted that Flynn died. (laughs) We can't all watch things the exact moment they come out, but we still want people to enjoy them later too. So I just felt like everybody towed a really nice line with Breaking Bad. I think there's a statute of limitations on spoilers. I like to give folks, you know, almost a full week. I'll try to go almost a full week being really careful around the office. Or I was on the bus and I was talking loudly about it with someone who had seen it and someone's eyes started to get big because they could hear us, but they didn't want to be hearing us. And so we sort of had this silent moment of understanding and we we stopped talking about Breaking Bad. You know, I had a moment like that in a restaurant recently where someone was just telling me what she hoped happened and our server got really upset. And we were like, don't worry, don't worry. No spoilers. We're just theorizing here. (laughs) 
For those who love Breaking Bad as much as we did and are looking for ways to fill the Breaking Bad-shaped hole that will now be in their lives, a couple of suggestions. Uh, mine is going to be Hold On and Better Call Saul is apparently coming maybe sometime next year. That's going to be the spinoff with Saul Goodman, Bob Odenkirk's character on Breaking Bad. That sounds like it's a done deal and we will have more Saul on TV at least in the years to come. I do think Saul Goodman is one of the best characters from that show, so I'm pretty excited. And we learned that one of Vince Gilligan's next project is something that's very near and dear to my heart. Greta, are you aware of this? No. He signed a deal with Sony, and it's going to involve a 13-episode order of a show called Battle Creek. Am I supposed to know what that means? Is this one of my horrible nerd fails? Battle Creek is about two detectives in Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh, there it is. And I'm very excited about Battle Creek, Michigan being portrayed on this Vince Gilligan TV show, which is also going to be run by house creator David Chase. So two TV powerhouses teaming up for this detective show that'll be on CBS next year. It's interesting that you mentioned where it's set, because I do think that was a really cool part about Breaking Bad, too. The scenery almost played its own character in the show. Absolutely. And the town of Albuquerque had huge economic benefits come its way from the filming of the show and the tourism associated with it. So, you know, maybe Battle Creek can get a little of that love. But Greta, can I just tell you that I want there to be one more Breaking Bad spinoff? Oh, sure. Because they tied up almost every loose end in the finale of Breaking Bad. But there's one that they did not. And it was one that was, for some reason, very important to me. Is it Marie's kleptomania? No. Oh. It's the fact that Huel is still just in a room somewhere. Oh, yes. Poor Huel. So I'm proposing anyone who's listening who has the power to make television, please bring to our televisions a new sitcom, Huel's the Boss. Oh, man, that's a really bad name. I want a family sitcom about Huel called Huel's the Boss. Okay. I don't even know how to respond to that, Trisha. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. We could talk about Breaking Bad all day, but we have a great interview for you with author Victoria Schwab. She's only 26 years old and already has a whole bunch of book deals. Her new book, Vicious, came out last week, and it takes a sort of dark look at superpowers. Turns out she's a bit of a sci-fi nerd herself, and one of her favorite shows is Doctor Who. So we couldn't not talk about it. I was living in England at the time in a shed in somebody's backyard in Liverpool, and I was writing a book on Deadline, and so I thought, this will be my reward. I got really sick after I turned in the book for like two weeks, and so I just basically sat down and binged Doctor Who. This is proof of how shallow I am as a viewer initially, because I got to season two, episode one, and David Tennant stepped in, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I was like, oh, hey, <laughs> I like this show. And I'm like, I am now the evangelical Doctor Who person who has pushed it on dozens and dozens of people. I have my friends, and every time I convince a new friend, I insist that I have to be there with them oh, when you watch the Tenant finale. Oh, I do like, I won't make thing. anyone watch the Tenant finale by themselves. That's hilarious. So I wonderful, do that too. though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want them to be alone. I, I want to be there at the beginning to help guide yes. them through those like couple of questions that might make them, if they can't have them answered immediately, might make them quit. Like, is this yeah. for British nine-year-olds? Yes, but keep watching. Yeah. <laughs> now, as someone whose day job is to create worlds and characters mm -hmm. who your readers probably have a lot of feelings about, does it change how you view sort of people's reaction to someone like Stephen Moffat or Davies, who are showrunners who have this idea in their head of what they want to create, but then they suddenly, because of the way our media landscape works now, are getting feedback much more immediately and in much more depth 
from <laughs> people who are consuming their characters about what they think should happen next. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's so fascinating. It should. It should make me an incredibly empathetic person <laughs> toward the showrunners as someone who, you know, even as an author, receives fairly constant feedback on the things that I'm creating. Uh, even though there's a lag time, I can't, I can't even be tempted to, like, make quick changes in my world. Uh, based on feedback, I can't imagine what the pressure is to be receiving such immediate critique. But I am such a harsh uh, television and movie watcher that I probably am way harder on them, if anything, as a writer. Because I, I, I have seen the show at its best, and I've seen the show with its best writing. And so I, I'm one of those viewers that holds it to that emotional standard. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm, I'm a really harsh critic of entertainment in general, just because I do understand the work that goes into it. And I think you can kind of tell, not to pinpoint that show, but just in general with entertainment, whether it's book or television or movie, you can tell when either a corner's been cut or something hasn't been given due consideration or too much or not enough credit has been given to the viewers or the readership. So I think that that I'm harsher <laughs> probably than anything. I wish that it made me a much more empathetic person, but no, it makes me way harsher. <laughs> Well, there's no reason why they can't just be excellent, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then you and then you want to be nicer to them, but then oh, that book or that movie or that television show comes along that really is spectacular, right. and you think they did it. You know why can't everybody do it? Uh, so it's a harsh mentality, I know, but it's why these wonderful, wonderful pieces of entertainment exist. Well, and I think what's happened for me especially is that I have such a wider access to books and movies mm-hmm. and music and TV shows that I don't have to consume anything I'm ambivalent about. Exactly, exactly. I had like, uh, I'm on Twitter. I live in the internet, I swear. But on Twitter, I kind of, every now and then when I do finish a show, I binge watch like four and a half seasons of Breaking Bad and I was morning <laughs> running out of episodes. And I went on Twitter and I kept asking them, like, give me, give me something to watch. I'm all caught up on Supernatural. I'm all caught up on Breaking Bad. I'm all caught up on all of these things. I need new entertainment. And so many people pushed fringe on me. And I I, I swear I will go back to it, but it just wasn't – I felt ambivalent. I I watched a few episodes, and it wasn't gripping me, and everyone kept saying, stick with it, stick with it, and I will. But there's so much good stuff out there that, like, if I'm not feeling it – and I think it's wonderful that there is that much good stuff because – you do have other options, and one thing doesn't have to appeal to everyone. So I put that down, and I picked up Orphan Black. Oh, yes. And I'm loving it. I literally, about five minutes before you guys called, finished episode five, I think it is, on the season. And, and that was just an immediate connection, first scene of the show. And I thought, that's what I want. I don't want to have to invest a season or two seasons in a show to have that kind of feeling. It's funny you say that because I tried Fringe too, and you know mm-hmm. it was a similar like everyone's like, oh my god, you haven't seen Fringe and you like Battlestar Galactica and all these uh-huh. others? Like, of course you have to watch Fringe. Yeah. And I tried, and I just could not. I didn't care. I didn't care yeah, about anything. No. Everyone said, oh well, season one's okay and season two's good, but season three is amazing. And I thought uh-huh. I'm not gonna watch two and a half seasons of a show just to start to like it. Right. Like, in retrospect, it'll all be worth it. And I was like, but I want it to be worth it now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm, yeah, with Orphan Black, it was like an immediate first scene with the train stop. And I was yeah. like, yep, yep, I'm here. Have you seen Continuum? <laughs> That's the one I keep trying no. to do recently. Is it good? Continuum, it's awesome. It's Canadian. There's two seasons. You're gonna okay. Love it. I love it when there's a season or two already available yep. just in case I hit that obsession point and need to yep. keep going. 
I think I hit that with Orange is the New Black. I was several weeks behind everyone else in Orange is the New Black, and it was all available. And that was just delightful. Yep. <laughs> I use I use um, television and movies as rewards for writing, as recharge. Like, I can't recharge in writing by reading. Uh, the, the mediums, too. It's the same medium. Sure. So I go out to movies, and I watch TV shows as, as creative recharge. And so having something like that that I can just disappear into. I tend to watch one show at a time, and I watch all of it. So that's your merit system. Oh. If you if you hit a word count for the day or finish the chapter you need to, then you yeah. get to go watch Orphan Black. That's awesome. Exactly. I use it as a reward for like every thousand words that I write. Watch an episode of Orphan Black. So <laughs> it's a good reward right now. Perfect. Yeah. Are there certain series coming back that you're like, oh, my God, I can't wait? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's a total spectrum for me. And some that I'm, like, super proud of and some that I'm less proud of. And we want to know I mean, about the guilty pleasures, too. I am, I am a really, really guilty Vampire Diaries watcher because they're all really pretty. And it's highly melodramatic. It's like watching a nighttime soap opera. But it's a nighttime soap opera with vampires. <laughs> and so it totally works for me. It's it's. It's something that I always look forward to. I am the person that cannot stop watching Supernatural, even though I should have stopped watching on, like, season five when the show was supposed to end. I, I love the bromance so much that I can't help myself. Like, um, I am really excited for Big Bang Theory to come back because I was a total late person to that show and did not really get what all of the fuss was about and then ended up just kind of catching episodes on television and have managed to amass the entire six season backlog by watching it out of order and then went back and watched it in order and just find it kind of absolutely delightful i i am tentatively very excited about shield okay that's tentatively because i it's joss whedon and it's superheroes and and so it's kind of everything that i love obviously as a writer of super villains (laughs) but uh i just really want it to be good I, it's one of the only times I've ever seen a fandom be strong enough that it could actually resurrect a dead character. <laughs> so I have to hand it to the fandom for managing to, managing to resurrect Coulson just for the television show. Um, and I hope that it works. I'm trying to think what else is coming out this fall. What are you guys excited about? I got to really enjoy Mindy Project as it went yeah. through its freshman season. And so I'm excited to see what they do now that they sort of have the comfort of knowing that they got picked up for the second season yeah. and them having a little more fun. I just love that Mindy Kaling has her own show almost <laughs> more than I love the show because I just feel like she paid her dues for a long time on The Office and is really brilliant. And I think that whenever she speaks in public or, mm-hmm. you know, goes on and does interviews, that she's sort of an amazing role model for creative people because she doesn't shy away from explaining that it's really hard work which I really love a lot of times people especially young people I think who have a lot of success will say oh it just I'm so lucky I'm so lucky and and that's true of course I'm sure but she'll say no Dave Letterman I work really hard I haven't slept more than five hours (laughs) you know since I was 19 or whatever it is and I have to imagine that that you probably toe that line a little bit too being so young and having out your books coming out, yeah. <laughs> that when people say, how did you do it? What do you say? Explaining. Yeah, I mean, I think she's a wonderful role model in that sense, because it, it is really hard. I mean, I, I'm 26, which considering that I have nine total coming out in the next two years uh, or on shelves, uh, it's hard because you, your automatic default, kind of how anyone asks you, are you having a good day? And your automatic answer is yes. Your automatic default when people say like, oh, you're just, you must be so lucky. You must be so happy is to just, yeah, default to that 
zone of, oh, I didn't earn it. It's just, it's all kind of fallen together. And, and the truth is that it just doesn't work that way. Even for, you know, age aside, I've been working at it now consistently for six years as a professional. And it's very hard work. I mean, I, it's 365 days a year. I, you, you don't get weekends. You don't get time off when you're a writer. You know, you feel guilty every moment you take that you're not working in some capacity. And I still get rejections. I have two manuscripts that will never come out. One of them before my first book sold, and one of them was like my third book. Um, so you still get told no, and you still, I think it's very much an uphill climb. And it's hard because you want to be very proud of all of the work that you've done, but you never want to obviously be entitled. And so I think it's a very hard balance. I think you're right that Mindy Kaling strikes it very, very well with conveying that, like, this is a job. This is hard and very, very constant work. And the job isn't just writing anymore because you have (laughs) an audience that you're expected to be a personality with and interact with. How do you manage that with the writing that has to be done, the creating the work (laughs) and the, you know, going out and sort of being a persona as well? Yeah, and finding time to be a person. Right. Oh, yeah, that's a really important part. Um, I'm very lucky in that I very much enjoy interacting. Like, I'm never going to be one of those cave authors that wants to go live in a hole in the middle of nowhere. I have many friends that are those authors. Uh, But I I do take a lot of energy from interacting with readers and interacting with the community. So I'm lucky in that respect. I don't, it's not a hardship. I enjoy being online and I enjoy going and doing tours and events and comic cons and things like that. But it definitely can become an excuse to not do work. It's very easy to justify procrastination with promotion. (laughs) And that's really dangerous. (laughs) Like I could spend And I have spent eight hours at the first part of my day being online and either um, interacting or writing blog posts or filming videos, and I can justify all of it. But at the end of the day, I still also have to find time to write. And and it is very, very tricky. And being a persona, I'm I'm actually – for all that I like being with people, I'm very introverted. So I have to like be with people for a couple hours and then run away for a couple hours and like hide in a dark room and then go back out and be with people. So yeah. it, it's, it's tricky and it is definitely a balance. I have friends that will go offline for a month at a time and I can't really, I would miss my fandoms. I would miss Tumblr, <laughs> but, but I, I can't imagine that. It's definitely part of my personality as much as it is part of my persona. Like, it's very genuine that I do love being online, and I do love the the socializing aspect of having a book out there. I mean, when you write a book and it hits shelves, it's no longer your book. It's everybody's book that chooses to read it. And having a shared experience, just as with any fandom, is really, really awesome and humbling. And I think I would be missing a huge part of the publication process to not enjoy that. So... So, yeah, it's it's kind of constant balance. I had to do a, a workshop recently on productivity, and, and it was funny because I spent, like, the week before the workshop trying to figure out how to be a productive person because it's <laughs> not something that I excel in. Um, but, yeah, I'm lucky that I enjoy it. I very much enjoy all parts of the process. <laughs> I love that something still comes back to luck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> It really does. And that's the thing. Luck is always going to be a factor because, like, whenever you're doing something creative in a business environment, that luck has to be a factor and timing has to be a factor and so many things out of your control are factors. Uh, but, but, yeah, luck and focus and, and pure willingness to give up sleep. <laughs> <laughs> sleep brings very totally little on the totem pole. <laughs> 
Greta, that's your problem. Yeah, Greta really likes sleep. She likes to yeah. get the recommended amount of sleep every day. Oh, man. Ideally, it would be nine hours, and I do eight, and it's, like, kind of a problem. <laughs> Who says it oh, should be nine? I'm trying to think of the last time I slept for eight hours. Oh. It was probably a year or two ago. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I do enjoy sleep, I have to admit. It is one of my favorite activities. But, I mean... <laughs> It, like, if I could get away with not getting as much, like, that yeah. would definitely be advantageous to me as well. It's just very useful. Very helpful. Yeah. I just, like, really need to sleep. I yeah. I feel good. I feel so I mean, I, I, I feel you. <laughs> some people some people are like this. I call it, with uh, another friend of mine, pumpkin time, where <laughs> they stop being a carriage and turn back into a pumpkin when they've reached that point in the day. And they really, like, they just know themselves. They're not going to yeah. be productive anymore. They're not really going to be very good company. <laughs> So it's just time to go to bed. I like that pumpkin time. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> totally turn into a pumpkin at like yeah. 6.30 p.m. It's the saddest thing. <laughs> oh, God. The worst part is that I don't. Like, I'm technically a very productive writer from the hours of like 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. But I really do like sleep, and I get up at 6.30 every day. So if I take advantage of that optimum night owl writing time, then I'm going to hate it the next day. So it's kind of finding that balance of like, how do you, because I think it's too tempting as a writer to not have any form of routine and just be like, I'll just write whenever the mood strikes me. And if that's 4am, then so be it. But, <laughs> but that works for like maybe two or three days. And then like it to be a consistent, productive individual, it doesn't work past that. So I'm curious what some of the other things you nerd out about are especially the kind of things that really influenced you when you were younger you know books or or yeah. movies or things that really sort of sparked the idea of creating stories and worlds and characters yeah well you know the thing is so i'm an only child and when you're an only child like you kind of become the god of your own world like you <laughs> make imagine many more imaginary friends probably than people with siblings do and, and you kind of are dictating this world and from a very young age I was very good at, like, ruling over my fictional world. <laughs> I have never, ever, ever been good at, like, living in the real world. It's not <laughs> something that I excel at. Like, reality, very low on my skill set. But And that has been that way since I was probably five or six, and my parents came home and saw me, like, acting out an execution of my teddy bears on the stairs. <laughs> because I had, like, an elaborate, like, four-hour narrative behind that, why that was happening. <laughs> so, so, like, the story time has always been there. And, like, the desire for not just fiction, but supernatural fiction or fiction that breaks out of the mundane has always been something that really appealed to me and translated for later into my writing of, I love, I say that I love to write stories that are supernatural in a way that makes you look around your own life and wonder if magic is there and you just haven't been looking at it right. Oh, I love that. So, and I think that goes way back to like just wanting that as a child. I have to give, I'll give a cliche answer and a not cliche answer. <laughs> My super cliche answer of like the books that completely transformed me is that I grew up in almost exact accord with Harry Potter. Yes. So I was like 11 or so when I read the first book and really was like acting out that age with Harry Potter. So it was so transformative because I was, the other thing of kind of like being an only child, I was that child that 
moved straight from very young reader books to trying to read things way above <laughs> my reading level, thinking that I needed to. Like, this was the way I was going to be taken seriously in the world. And I hated them. I had zero enjoyment for reading because of it, um, because it was such a chore. It's that, that, that age where you think, if my eyes can just touch every word on the page, that counts as reading. <laughs> like, none of it's going in, but I'm reading the words. And so Harry Potter was really one of the first books that, that I very much just enjoyed enjoyed as a reader and disappeared into. Um, and so that's my, like, it feels like that's a cliche, but it's so true. I'm like, Harry Potter, you made me, you know? <laughs> but We're exactly the same age, and I completely yeah. had that experience where at midnight, I would go with a small group of friends of mine mm-hmm. for the new book p- release parties, and we were the same age as the characters for the it, first three, four, five years so of the series. Yeah. It makes that's the so experience... Funny. So much, like, because it becomes a cultural phenom, even to the point when then you're the age, when the movies start coming out that I don't know if this happened for you, but, like, my heart would race when one of the trailers would start, like, that music would start playing for, like, Hogwarts, and I would just, like, be in the theater, and I would start freaking out, because you're, like, a teenager, and it's it's just, it's your world, so I feel like there's a 10-year period of my life that's so consumed by it. That just culturally, it's all I knew. It was my one true fandom <laughs> for that that period of time. And then, yeah, I, I was very shaped by Neil Gaiman as a teenager. Reading, um, I always have been. Like, it's no secret. I, I living on the internet. Like, he is one of my absolute writing heroes, and I've been very lucky to meet him several times now and um and get hugs and and talk. Aww. I remember, like, the first the first time I met him, I, I was doing World Fantasy Con for the first time as an author. And so, and I waited all weekend to get a hug with him uh, at, in this signing line. And my poor, my Twitter following at that point had, like, I guess been tweet harassing him to be like, there's an author there and she loves you and you should hug her. You should go <laughs> hug her. She really wants you to hug her. And finally, he was tweeting back to them being like, I have not seen her. I have not <laughs> seen her all weekend. If I see her, I swear I will hug her. And they, he had run out of signing time, and so they'd opened a little extra signing for him on Sunday morning. And I went with, with two of my books. I went with Graveyard Book and Stardust, and I stood there in line for like two hours. And I went up to him, and I almost chickened out on saying anything. And then finally, as he was signing my books, I was like, um, I'm the author, I think, whose Twitter following has been perhaps and I got like halfway through the explanation and he looks up from his work and he's not looked up from anything this whole time. And he looks up and he drops his pen and he goes, it's you. Oh. <laughs> and he like stands up. And he's like, I've got to give you a hug. <laughs> and he like very like kind of gratefully hugs me. Like the, the, everything will be okay now. And, um, and it was just so, he was so nice and so genuine. And I thought my friends and I have been such a horrible person. Uh, <laughs> but like a year later I had the opportunity to see him somewhere else. And he tweeted me in advance and he said come backstage we'll get to talk before we'll get a proper hug and like ever since like it's just he's been a wonderful presence and influence and that was the first time when I met him that second time that he knew I was an author like he knew what my books were and he had had gotten a message from my editor and like having that transition from Neil Gaiman knowing that you're a fan to Neil Gaiman knowing that like you're what would be considered a colleague is like a very, very formative moment in my life. And I just got goosebumps for you. Like, <laughs> oh, that's a really, that's a really beautiful story. <laughs> I don't tell it very well because I get very flustered even just thinking about it. But that second time when I walked into the green room after his show, um, before I could even introduce myself, like I remember rounding the corner of the green room and he saw me and he just threw his arms out to the side. Oh my like God. he just like in hug form, now and I just with I, I just died I think on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, so sweet. Yeah. 
and he's just an incredibly like to be very honest i am um, not only do i love neil gaiman's books but he's the kind of author that i will always aspire to be like He's incredibly genuine, and he's incredibly good to his fans. And while I never, ever anticipate being the level of author that he is, uh, he is a complete role model. Thanks to Victoria for talking with us. Her new book, Vicious, came out last week, and it's a great read. Reading Vicious was actually what inspired us to come up with this question for you guys about superheroes. In Vicious, each character has a superpower that is very unique to his or her personality. And so Trisha and I were talking about what our favorite superpowers are, and uh, we thought we'd ask you guys to take votes on whose was better. Trisha, what's yours? Flight. A classic. Eh. Lame. And Greta. The power to keep baby animals baby. And you did give one caveat for this. Yes, the caveat is they would still be able to grow and develop mentally. So they're not stuck peeing on the rug for the rest of their lives. They do get cleverer. But they're just still cute. This is eternal cuteness we're talking about, guys. And you guys had a lot of feelings about this. I would definitely choose flight. I'd choose the ability to make baby animals always look like baby animals because baby animals are cute and make the world go round, and flying is just a luxury. How do you know that people are going to use this superpower for good and not evil? It's really a slippery slope. If you have the power to keep baby animals babies, who's to say you're not going to want to start keeping baby humans babies? And then we're just going to have a bunch of baby animals and baby humans on the planet for which there's not enough room. Whereas in the atmosphere, there's plenty of room for all of us to fly. And how could you use that power for evil? We're just going to be flying. Hi, guys. Victoria here. I have been giving it a lot of thought as to whether I would rather have the power of flight or keeping baby animals babies. And as selfish as I want to be, I am going to give the selfless answer and say that I would rather have the ability to fly because I just feel like as much as I love baby animals, and I I mean, I really do. I have spent hours looking at baby animal pictures online. I feel like that would probably create a really, really big ecosystem issue because they wouldn't be able to reproduce and then we would have this static quantity of baby animals and then god forbid things happen to them and like we just wouldn't have any more so in the interest of not causing some kind of mass cute animal extinction i'm going to say that i would rather have the ability to fly but i really do like baby animals i would probably pick baby animals as long as they don't act like baby animals Because I don't know if you've ever raised a puppy, but they're a lot of work. They're cute, but a lot of work. And a bonus poll, I asked my husband before calling in, and he immediately said flight. So if there's no limit to the power of flight, like if I could go all the way to Spain or visit my baby nephews in Philadelphia or go see my sister in Kansas City without my head exploding from all the atmospheric pressure, then I'd probably have to choose flight. But it would have to be speedy. So I I don't want to be in the air for 12 hours just to get somewhere like Tahiti. Um, You know, I could just take an airplane for that. So I guess what I'm saying is that I really would want the power to apparate Harry Potter style. I cannot believe the idea with baby animals. I'm all for it. That's my choice. I would choose flight because I like things that are awesome more than I like things that are cute. If you're just 
surrounded by baby animals, aren't you just setting yourself up to be nibbled to death in your sleep by raging kittens? Flying is pretty cool. I'm a short person, and I could use flight, you know, to easily reach stuff in my kitchen cabinets. And believe me, it's ridiculous how much I struggle with that in my own house, not being able to reach stuff. So it would have to be flight. To actually truly answer your question, I propose another question, which is how fast of flight? Because if it's the speed of sound or the speed of light, that's awesome. But if it's flying as fast as we can move around already, you uh, kind of lame. So if you can answer that, I'd be able to answer fully. Thanks to everyone who called in with their picks on our flight versus keeping baby animals, baby superpower showdown. You know, I have to call out my little brother, Jacob, who's nestled in there, has really embodied the true nerd spirit by answering our question with a question of his own. And that's fair because the caveats to me are the most important part in any superhero this or that conversation. We'll probably have to come up with another this or that for you guys soon. But for this week... Your homework is going to come not from us, but from Robin Sloan. This is actually good homework because it's not as intense as reading a whole book, although his books are fantastic. He has a blog. If you Google M. John Harrison blog, um, it's called The Ambient Hotel. You'll find it. And it is my favorite blog on the whole Internet these days because the posts, they're not like newsy and it's not opinions about current affairs. There are these little paragraphs. And some of them are real descriptions of, you know, things he's done or observed during the day. Others are clearly dispatches from some other world. But, of course, they're not labeled as facts in fiction, uh, you know, reality and imagination. And so it becomes this sort of wonderful haze where you read each post. And they are. They're all just a paragraph long, this perfect little chunk of text that you can kind of consume in just one great gulp. And I think it's just some of the best, most interesting writing out there. I am, I'm never happier than when there's a new post. So Robin Sloan has given you some homework. You can hear more from him next week on Nerdette. And you might even be able to see him this week. A listing of all of his tour dates on our website, nerdettepodcast.com. Your other assignment is to catch up on one from earlier this summer, and that's reading his book, Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. We'll be talking about the book with Robin next week on the show. All right, that's it for today. Thanks to everyone who called in and left us messages about flight versus baby animals. And of course, to Victoria Schwab. Her new book, Vicious, is in stores now. Thanks also to Robin Sloan. And thank you all for listening on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud. Yeah, thanks for the stars, guys. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme, but he did weigh in on our debate over superheroes. Hey, this is NPR composer. B.J. Lederman, and, you know, I chose baby animals because basically that's uh, what I was told to say, in fact. You know, Greta said, call in and say, quote, hey, this is B.J., and I chose baby animals because Greta is obviously way smarter than Tricia, end quote, etc. But the real reason is um, I love baby animals, and if I could fly, I would just be constantly smashing into things, and I would never get anything done. For instance, my debut album, Natural Public Leaderman. But we don't need to hear about that, do we? Baby animals. I'm just going to say animals. I win that one, Tricia. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Paddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, 
Crew and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.